Spyfall is a story full of strange and daring choices. Where better to gain insight into the mind of the man behind it, showrunner Chris Chibnall, than through his very own audio commentary? Today we'll unpack what Chibnall, along with Jodie Whittaker and Ada Lovelace actress Sylvie Briggs had to say, and actually very notably what they didn't have to say about Spyfall Part 2 in another of our themed commentary examinations and discussions where we look at Chibnall era commentary tracks and other interesting paratextual material based around certain episodes and certain themes they fall under. A lot of interesting stuff from these Chibnall era commentaries doesn't seem to crop up in conversations around the era as much as you might expect so I think it's super interesting to go through some of the coverage here. And where we previously looked at finality and actor relationships with the show with the commentaries for the last three Chibnall era specials, and where we'll later look at authenticity, historicals, and personal history with Demons of the Punjab and Nick Tesla's Night of Terror, and then look at ideology and authorship and worldviews with Rosa and Spyfall Part 1, then look at direction with War of the Sontarans, the Saranga Conundrum, and The Woman Who Fell to Earth. Today, we're looking at controversy. Courting controversy, writing inspiration, overstepping of lines, those sorts of ideas. The two Spyfall episodes are very different episodes in lots of ways. Even setting aside story and theme, unlike what we usually think of as a two-parter, they were directed by different directors and filmed in different production blocks. And so their commentaries fit better into different theme groupings as we're covering them. So I'm joined by my English friends Ingiga and Oliver to explore Spyfall 2's commentary today. Apart from our first discussion on the Eve of the Daleks, Legend of the Sea Devils, Power of the Doctor commentaries, have you two, Gig and Oliver, have you heard any of the other Chibnall era commentary tracks before? Or is this your first time hearing them? Yeah, for sure. I, I've not put myself through this before. Um, I've heard a few clips from some of the series 11 and 12 ones, but not all of them. I mean, I could never be bothered sitting through all of them. <laughs> Well, I've done it studiously and selected what I found to be the most interesting and relevant commentary clips for us to comment on, and for our listeners to hear, and for us all to discuss. So let's dive in with the first one, uh, which is appropriately timey-wimey in being a bit of a comment on the Spyfall 1 commentary track and the commentary style of Chibnall and the others in this era as well in general. Let's dive in. Talk over this bit. We've seen this bit. We've, we've done a commentary on episode one, which was incredibly which was uninsightful or revealing. <laughs> apart from Tosin was ill. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Spider Gate. Yeah. I love a recap. It's like 60 seconds of just all the exciting bits from episode one. So, what do you think of that beginning? I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> yeah. I was going to mention um, there's. The, the, there's something actually very funny about Chibnall being aware that he's not even spoiling episodes that he's currently commentating over, right? They're not saying anything because the spoiler phobia goes that far. I've listened to a lot of commentaries in my time, and some patterns I've noticed is, for me at least, for what I'm into, the ones with the directors and writers and sometimes producers tend to be more interesting than the ones more with cast members because I think cast members have a lot of funny anecdotes about filming that are really relevant to their experience. But if you want to talk more about the production or the intent and things like that, which is more what I'm into and maybe we're into, uh, you get that more with the writers and directors in my experience. But with these ones, uh, with Chibnall, sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes there isn't a lot said, sometimes very literally. 
Uh, but this Spyfall 2 one does have some interesting things to say. Did you know anything about Ada Lovelace before you came in? I had heard of her. And friends had actually done a play about her, so they oh, were like, wow. yeah. so had all this research to come okay, across so over. Right. Oh, right, right, right. Still that. And did you do that? Did you do the whole research? Like, how method did you go? I mean... It's not a test. It's you kind of look up a lot, but then when you're actually playing someone, kind of... I should be recovered. got to just be real on the day, yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. I did it. I was slightly embarrassed by how little I knew. She, she props have I mean, been a lot of, you've yeah. got kid books of, like, powerful women in history and important yeah. women in history. So there's a lot of that, but it's always kind of contained to a... Small, yeah, like chunk. A, and a lot, actually, friends who work in tech companies, they have, like, the Lovelace Room or whatever. Yeah. They, so she's still kind of a big name in yeah. tech. Second of all, don't talk back to the screens. Obviously yeah, there was a whole thing, wasn't there, about her appearing on banknotes while we were filming this and just afterwards and thinking, you know, I don't think she's on a banknote. No, but there was a whole, whole discussion, wasn't there, about whether she would be. Yeah, so that one maybe frames our conversations a little more appropriately because there's a lot of things in that which are going to crop up again. So there's the idea of not having much knowledge of a figure before but wanting to just live through the figure, through what's in the script. Uh, there's this idea of knowing a figure just through big tech or through some kind of uh, superficial cultural thing like banknotes and things like that. Uh, that's going to crop up more in other episodes as well. Uh, what do you guys get from this one? I feel like she mentioned um, uh, Ada Lovelace appearing in books of powerful women and stuff. And I, just, I wonder if such a book was basically the the source material for this whole episode. Because <laughs> it does seem like Chibnall's kind of... Who um, are some interesting women from history to just kind of throw into this episode without much uh, more in the way of depth? Yeah, it interests me that, that Ada Lovelace isn't a particularly obscure historical figure. Like... She's not unknown. Um, so yeah, interesting that um, interesting that that they don't have. Not, I don't think you need to research in great depth about the characters you're writing, even if even if this wasn't a superficial episode. Um, I don't think you you need to do that kind of research. But it's interesting, I think that that they don't. And obviously, there's the reflection there that you're teeing up with. Um, Jodie's portrayal of the Doctor, right? Um, the fact that they're just performing what's written, uh, which in itself is fine, but when the writing isn't there to support it, ends up being an issue. At least so far, I'm more interested in commonalities than any criticism or anything. I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with the actress not knowing much about Ada beforehand, but I think it's interesting as we go on some patterns we're going to see with what actors are saying and what Chibnall is saying and other writers are saying or what differences we might see between writers. Uh, and the big tech thing interests me, how that's going to recur as well. I also think um, the banknotes, just in terms of a, a, someone, a, a historical figure being, I guess, absorbed into the establishment, so to speak, and especially on a banknote, something that's literally a symbol of the, the financial system. It's really like a, it's a marker that you've made it into the halls of bourgeois acceptability, I guess, to appear on a banknote. Yeah, that's going to recur. <laughs> and that, that a material thing that um, a subject of history is worthy of celebration, not because of their accomplishments, but because they are symbolically represented or they were talked about being symbolically represented on banknotes and because they're symbolically represented in the halls of power at Facebook or wherever. Um, 
it's not actually about the person. It's about the iconography of that person. This will, yeah, the Tesla episode is going to link a lot to this. Another interesting thing here, I think, with the book about powerful women, do either of you remember that Chibnall thing in Doctor Who magazine in 2018 about how he came into the era wanting to do stories about the partition and Rosa Parks and that? So he like mm-hmm. he wanted to do those stories and then he you know sought out the writers and the briefs and everything for them. I think that's a kind of link here as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in some respects, Spyfall Part 2 feels like maybe a, a slight attempt to redo that thing from Series 11, which was received fairly positively, I think. I mean, not necessarily by me, but like by people in general. You know, Rosa went down very well. So I feel like maybe Chip was trying to get back some of that juice with uh, Spyfall Part 2. I think people like the idea of the show being educational, whether it is or it isn't or in what way it is. I think it's something people generally like the concept of and they especially like that kind of vague linking oh the show was started as this so it's like a connection it's similar to the timeless children brain of morbius cartmore master plan thing if you ask me where it's like this kind of vaguely invokes this vague understanding i have that there was a past thing that was doing the same thing so it's really cool they're continuing that legacy now i think a lot of the educational thing the show people are like oh it's like I don't know if they've seen particular Hartnell serials, but if they have, they might think, oh, it's like the Romans or it's like the Aztecs or whatever else. You know, we've got that educational thing coming through. It's the remit of the show again. What a powerful legacy. Yeah, you always get people saying this this, this era is the most like classic who. Truly, this is like classic who all over again. And, and maybe it is in some ways, but not necessarily flattering ones. And I think that um, that concentration on the idea that the show's educational again speaks to um, a, a lack of... I don't know, appreciation that all TV, all media is educational by virtue of teaching people how to live, right? Um, the, the, the idea that it's only teaching kids anything important if it's reading off a PowerPoint rather than, you know, instilling life lessons or whatever, as Doctor Who has always done. Yeah, it's a shallowness, I guess. There's some episodes with absolutely zero, um, absolutely zero <laughs> historical grounding or even less scientific thinking than usual, that I still think are a lot more educational in the sense that they're kind of equipping viewers with tools that might actually be useful in their life. You can think of, uh, in Heaven Sent, that kind of view of progress or, you know, how progress can climb up through, you know, repetitive actions or Return of Dr. Mysterio, the sad and happy thing, which is in a lot of episodes, actually, you know, Vincent and the Doctor how can I be happy if someone, you know, an awful thing happens? How can I compartmentalize or how can I deal with both these things? A lot of these episodes aren't teaching you anything in the sense that I think people talk about for educational stuff. But in a way, in the way Oliver's talking about, I think are more educational in that it's something that might actually stick with you and might actually even be useful more than just kind of trivia about historical figures, especially that trivia is sometimes quite wonky. I mean, that's one of the big tensions in teaching isn't it yeah the the tension between knowledge and understanding whether we're um getting people to know some facts or whether we're fostering uh, an ability to comprehend and uh, be curious absolutely oh, i loved this bit that's a bit i wasn't sure that's one of those things you think can i, can I write that yeah. can i, I make, say can it, I, can do I, it, I, it can it. i have him make her kneel that I feels so epic yeah. There's something about your performances that makes it feel epic, mm. but it's just that two hander, you know. It is so epic. <laughs> epic indeed. I, I, I wonder if that's in the script, like a bracket, so epic, close bracket. 
<laughs> what I really like about this commentary is, you know, there's no commentary for the Timeless Children or for a lot of other episodes that I think are controversial in the fandom. But Spyfall 2 is pretty controversial in the fandom and there is commentary for it and the showrunner is on it, which is a really great gift because we don't get that much uh, in this era with the commentaries. So to actually have these controversial scenes on screen and have Chibnall talking about them, is a, it's a real joy for me. Uh, but in terms of what's actually being said, yeah, what do, what do you think of the judgment on the kneeling? It's interesting that Jodie outright said, I mean, it's an, it's an offhand remark, but she says she hated it. <laughs> if you listen closely, I just, I wonder, obviously she, she's not necessarily being that serious, but I do think sometimes things that slip out are kind of revealing in their own way. And the fact that he wasn't sure he could get away with writing it means he's well aware of all the connotations. Because mm. you can just, you can have a scene like that um, written innocently, but he's aware that he's pushing boundaries there, which means he, he's writing it with gender in mind, Yeah, which is interesting, I think. And actually kind of novel for Chib writing 13, isn't it? Because, I mean, yeah. when it comes to her gender, and it's kind of, it's been sort of, sort of vaguely floating around, but not necessarily implemented that much. I think that's one of the virtues of Spyfall, and but I, I think it's really interesting that it finally begins pushing gender as a yeah. concept that matters to this era. Um, it doesn't really happen in Series 11 outside of what the Witchfinders, maybe. The the conversation they had leading into that was about uh, height disparity, slight height disparity between Sasha and Jody, which I think you can read in kind of a gendery way as well. Uh, especially since, you know, the act of kneeling is literally making yourself shorter. So it's interesting that he's just kind of thinking of it, ooh, is this too controversial? Like, can I get away with it? It's 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 just kind of a, it's a very TV-ish way, I think, about of thinking about it. Like, it's bringing up an issue just to kind of go, ooh, but that's kind of it. Mm. It's interesting to hear Chibnall acknowledge the idea of people reacting perhaps negatively to something he wrote <laughs> because it sometimes feels like he's maybe a bit insulated from that whole sphere or the idea of acknowledging <laughs> how people are going to respond to his stuff i don't know well there's that tension of you know he said now he doesn't look at reviews or anything which i think is totally understandable and then some of the stuff we're getting out of the gallifrey one convention from his co-exec matt strevens kind of sounds the other way around like some of the Thasman choices might have been informed by audience reception or audience ideas. Uh, so I think it's a bit ambiguous at times how much Chibnall is feeding off the audience or what he assumes the audience might be thinking or what exactly is going on there. There's something really interesting about um, about the fact that gender is used by the master and not really the other way around. There doesn't feel, and maybe this is a problem in execution more than anything, but there doesn't feel like a there's a moment of vindication that the Doctor isn't lesser because of her gender. She's put down by it in scenes like this. You know what it might be? It, Chibnall might be getting quite intersectionalist here in that the Master's kind of weaponizing gender with the Doctor and then the Doctor weaponizes race against him <laughs> later on in the episode. <laughs> they are true equals. It's interesting you mentioned the idea of the Doctor being more or less than the Master because... Ultimately, at the end of Series 12, we find out that the Doctor can only be more than the Master because she has more incarnations. So there you go. One of the best things, like researching Ada, was that thing about the paralysis. As soon as like, I read like she had these paralyses, like, oh that's God. a Doctor Who story. There's unquestionably yes. she had all these paralysis. Yeah. Um, she's paralysed all these times throughout her life and they never found out what it was. And oh it was my like, goodness, Okay, yeah. great, that gives us the well, I was going to ask, what kind of, how did you come to 
Multiple Ada times. for this. N- I knew I wanted to include her in the show, and yeah. then um, I read up about her. We have a great script team. We do loads of research, and mm. so we did that. And then and then we sit around and discuss it really. And then and it was just you, there were just things that pinged out instantly from her story. Yeah, um, yeah. So and one of the things was the. Her, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to use her because of things story being about computing and about the yes. history of computing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, all that. and um and then yeah, two or three things you thought, oh, that's just a beautiful, just unexplained sort of perfectly. gap where a Doctor Who story can yeah. take place, really. Um, yeah, so I was just like, oh, of course, she was kidnapped by aliens, and that is <laughs> I mean, that's you know done. It's now obvious. a biography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, it's basically a biopic. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe this is how I find out that Spyfall was about the history of computing. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that had been in the episode. The writing inspo, writing inspiration stuff in this commentary and the ones we're about to listen to as well is really interesting to me. Later on, he's going to talk about how he came to the computing thing. So here we get Ada came out of the episode being about computers. Later on, we'll learn why the episode is about computers. Uh, but I think we're getting a real sense of how his mind works uh, with the writing. So there's an idea and then there's like what can fit into that idea, like what historical figure or period can fit into that and then how can I utilize them in the episode. So that's quite interesting to me. And again, it's that thing of I know I want to use the figure beforehand, then I research the figure, which I think is valid, but we'll see later. There's other ways you can do that as well. Um, He mentions that when he found out about these, I guess, episodes that Ada Lovelace had of paralysis, he immediately thought, that's a Doctor Who story. And, um, <laughs> I, might, I might be misremembering the episode here, but does does anything like that actually come up? I, I, I don't know. No, I didn't think so. The, yeah, the, she doesn't get paralysed. She gets zipped away into a magic realm of magic, right? Yeah, I don't know if maybe maybe he like had a second thought, like maybe we shouldn't make that into the story, or maybe we just can't be bothered making that, I don't know. It's a very accepted thing in Doctor Who, but I find that, hey, this historical figure had a weird thing happen, let's jam a Doctor Who story in there. Like, it's very, Doctor Who does this all the time. Uh, Unicorn and the Wasp uh, is a big New Who example. I'm never quite sure how I feel about it. Like, there's some instances where it's a bit of fun, and there's some instances where I think it's a bit weird. When it's like a disability thing, or or like a tragedy thing in someone's life. I think it's sometimes a bit odd, but I get is is there like a time limit where it gets gets more comfortable and cool to do or what what do you guys think about that? I guess it's to do with uh, what the nature of it is like like you say whether it's tragic or personal or whatever. I think um an example that comes to mind that's I think maybe not uh, so much like that is that um, Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon kind of implicitly uses the silence and the paranoia that the Doctor instills in Richard Nixon as a kind of a, a pretext for everything that then went on mm. with tapes and yeah, such yeah. with Richard Nixon that, that's a bit of fun I think and that's the kind of thing that, and also because you know Nixon's a bastard so it's sort of like I guess it's just like as long as you're not I guess um, digging around crassly in human tragedy and stuff then it's probably fine Twice Upon a Time typifies that sort of light touch um, with the Christmas truce thing, mm. um, where the historical moment is used and it's thematically tied to everything and it's matched with the story without making it a causal relationship, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's not an alien causes the Christmas truce, which uh, sort of, you know, devalues and uh, goofifies the whole thing. Um, but instead it works the other way. And I think that's a lot more effective, even if it's less um, naturally inclined to being a Doctor Who story. There's a lot of concern about 
like the agency of the figures, particularly when they're kind of inventors or artists in some way, like, is it okay that the doctor or a companion inspired someone? Like, is it okay in Diodati that Mary Shelley got the idea for, you know, <laughs> got the idea from Ashad? Like, is it okay that we do that? Uh, and I see different episodes seem to have very different ideas about that. Like, Vincent and the doctor, I think, was very chill with it. Like, Van Gogh is obviously already very talented and, you know, him. some things in that episode's getting drawn wasn't like devalu- devaluing, I guess, because they were mostly original uh, pictures. But you'll see Chibble talking about, we'll talk about it here a lot, where he's like concerned, what if I make it like the doctor made this figure do that? I, that isn't what I'd worry about so much. I find it more weird to go like this person had something happen in their life. We could put the Doctor Who story in there. I find that more weird than the, oh, the Doctor inspired this person thing. Because it's still like, it's a Doctor Who episode. We're not actually saying in real life. Ada Lovelace was inspired by an alien, you know, like it's all Doctor Who at the end of the day. I, I don't know. I guess it's a personal taste thing. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same. Um, the it, uh, Audiences are discerning enough to not think that if Ada Lovelace is inspired by the Doctor, that that means she was worthless in real life, right? Yeah. People know it's an episode of Doctor Who and so long as you you're deliberate enough with laying out that she is a skilled and intelligent person otherwise it doesn't really matter. I think there's a kind of sense you can get of how much respect an episode might have for a figure and the more sense of that you get I think the more leeway you feel with the insertion of the doctor into their inspiration or things like that. The more I feel an earnest respect towards Tesla or lack of respect towards Nixon or whatever, I feel like I have a different bandwidth for what I'm cool with the episode doing, which is a kind of intangible thing, but I think you know it when you feel it. Just on the note of Vincent and the Doctor, which you brought up, I mean, it's important to remember in that episode, the whole point is that ultimately the Doctor and Amy's intervention doesn't change the outcome of Vincent's life. So, so it's kind of like, it, like like offsetting all that. And because yeah. that's such an incredibly serious issue like of him taking his own life, like it, it's that feels respectful in its own way, the fact that they don't like magically change the outcome. There's a kind of... I think part of the respect towards a figure comes when they kind of lampshade or directly talk about the kind of tragedies or what happens next. Like, I feel that in Vincent and the Doctor, and I feel it uh, to an extent in Tesla, where there's kind of awareness, things end badly here, uh, but it's not bad right now, you know, in this adventure. Uh, We'll get it more with Nor later on in this episode, but I think you need, I think to some extent, it's works better for me when you kind of highlight, well, this is, you talk, you suggest what happens next to them, even if it's a bad thing, I think gives you a more holistic view of the person. And then I feel like you get more leeway to do what you want to do with them right now. Because if you're not showing what happens next, it's more like you're kind of presenting the whole picture of the person. Like it, it kind of freezes them a bit, I think, in viewers' minds, especially kids who might not be inclined to go Wikipedia them or whatever. They might think, oh, so that person did that. And that's the end of the story. I, I like how Vincent and the Doctor or Tesla kind of suggest, well, you know, after this, so-and-so happens. I'm a little more uncomfortable. Or, you know, uh, like Day of the Moon, I think, suggests as well uh, what happens next uh, to a degree. But when they don't suggest that, yeah, you, you don't want to freeze the figure in ice, I think, because then it's like you're making a bigger statement than if you weren't, if that makes sense. And Vincent and Tesla both um, present that end note as a sort of twist on a Doctor Who episode. Cause- yeah. Vincent the Doctor's all about defeating that invisible monster, and then they do it, uh, and it doesn't make everything better. And the the shape of a Doctor Who episode you expect is that 
by doing the Doctor Who genre stuff, we then heal the characters. That's not worked this time. Um, and here's why. And Tesla does the same kind of thing in, um, it's, it's going there to write that historical injustice. Um, but you end on the note that Tesla doesn't much mind. He's got his own, he's making the future. Um, and it's okay. I think what you're kind of saying that I really like is like, these figures are larger than Doctor Who. They're larger than the shape of a Doctor Who story. So it's kind of a respect to let them expand beyond what the tone of a Doctor Who story should be. Like, what Vincent and the Doctor deals with isn't what you'd normally expect a Doctor Who story to enclose within itself, but the figure is paid so much respect that the show expands to allow that to happen. Uh, yeah, I that that's really good. And like Tesla as well, the show expands to allow the tragedy, which might not fit a Doctor Who episode, to you know, be suggested. When the show doesn't expand and it just kind of stops the figure, you know, at the end of the line, it kind of stops them within the shape of a Doctor Who episode, which I think is what this episode does with Noor, uh, I find that less respectful because then it's like you're constraining them to be a Doctor Who character instead of being the actual person that they were. Which is interesting because you would hope that um, that, that seeing historical characters as people beyond their scopes of the Doctor Who episode would sort of come out naturally from this kind of episode where you've got more characters than you've got room for the story to be about them. Yeah. You would think that that means they have to be full characters in their own right, but it doesn't really come out like that. Um, I think it's really interesting that, um, that Chibnall is so, um, set on preserving Ada's historical agency and so unconcerned by actually writing her agency as a constant through the story. It's quite mechanical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because after this one scene, she doesn't really make any decisions. The, th the other thing there, I think, is that I notice, I'm not going to like prescribe that it, it's necessarily always works this way, but I notice sometimes the writers that seem to have a pre-existing relationship with a figure or a period seem to handle this much better than the writers who are looking at what figure or period would fit into this story I have, like, Chibnall has the computing idea and then Ada comes from that and then Ada is treated how she's treated. Vinay has the pre-existing attachment to the uh, sort of thing he writes about in Demons and then I think that's a lot of the reason that episode feels more authentic and respectful to me. Tesla's writer uh, seemed very enamoured by Tesla as we'll hear soon and I think part of the respect and the, just the general attitude towards the treatment of the figure in that episode I think comes from that. I think this kind of backwards mapping way where it's like the sci-fi idea for my episode is this, so the figures that fit into it are this, so I'll treat the figure this way, but I've got to be careful not to do them that way. It's so mechanical that I think you get these weird clunky things we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I'm sure there are some examples. I mean, I think Nixon's portrayal, it's not deep, but it's quite interesting. Um, and that didn't, you can tell that doesn't come from like a fascination with Nixon as a romantic historical figure or anything. I think there, as ever, there are ways to make that work. You can slot a historical figure into a story that is basically about other stuff. Um, but like you say, it's, uh, it means your treatment of that character is less likely to be, um, respectful and fully thought out. Yeah. I guess it's just like your attitude can bleed in a bit. There's obviously you can make it work, but you might have a little, sharper sense of what works or what doesn't if you've got that attachment although i say that sometimes i think the writers might have too much attachment to a figure i think of um gatus in series five 
maybe. And like sometimes <laughs> your relationship with the figure might inform the episodes in ways that aren't the best or, or the most entertaining for a story or the most responsible for a story, maybe. That, I mean, that run of basically RTD era celebrity historicals from The Unquiet Dead through to Victory of the Daleks um, and arguably ending with Vincent, they're all purely celebratory, right? That They're all about celebrating how great usually the work of an artist is, but also politicians. And that all comes from maybe an over attachment to those to those people or or at least in a difficulty with being critical of them when i love that image though of the, the you know the just landed the, the, the period dress in yeah. it's so yeah. brilliantly with sort the of tux who. And yeah the, yeah the madness oh, of everything combined but even on you know with shows like this that we have so many actors and it's so ensemble it is really exciting to do scenes as three women that oh is my God, and, and, so and, nice. and the subject not being hey three women let's talk about being <laughs> women it's, yeah. irrele- it's absolutely irrelevant to it yeah. you know but it is really lovely and yeah. we had so many days on this didn't we it was just us yeah. three what do we think of uh, that Chibnall's feminist cred in teaming those three women together I think the fact that Jodie felt um, like it was so refreshing to just have a scene that was just women, like for for a while. I think it, it reminds me just how how annoying it was that we didn't get like thirteen and Yaz just being the TARDIS team. <laughs> like we always have like men like bumbling around in the way. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a deep failure of the whole industry that having three women doing stuff as a team is this big. Um, change in how things run but i also think um the there's something of um it feels to me like this is what surface level um being a feminist text is about yeah right um obviously it's massively important just the idea of having three women in an adventure together um but but there's that slightly frustrating, I guess, sort of Bechdel test thing where the 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 meaning of a text is measured by the aesthetic rather than the substantive and content. Because this isn't a story about three women, you know, no, by any no. metric. If anything, it's a story about the Doctor and the Master, um, which is a, an intentionally gendered relationship. Um uh, and I think you could argue quite an interesting feminist reading for that, but it's not the story of three women by any stretch. Um, and, and their role in the episode ends up being purely aesthetic. Yeah, it really is a higher, more female CEOs kind of situation, isn't it? Especially with the, with the tech themes. Lenny Henry's character and the master, I think, drive this narrative and are more focal to this narrative than these women, even the doctor, in a lot of ways. So, like, yes, it's good that three women have a scene not about men and that they're active characters sort of are doing things but it's like it's that thing typical to this era where there is like representation and it's good and that's like it like we're on the first step of the staircase here and then Chibnall's standing proudly on it but it's like we could walk up the whole thing you know we're just not it's like um I get frustrated because I think one of the most interesting and notally feminist episodes of the show is um, The Wedding of Riversong, but it's not on the surface a uh, a woman's story, right? It's 
um, the, the Doctor is put at the centre of the narrative, but it is the narrative of the other women in that story. And there's... Uh, obviously, the aesthetics are still important, and it is important that uh, that there's three women leading this story. But But it's not got the same depth and the same complexity of who the narrative actually belongs to. Um, I think there's something potentially quite interesting about the fact that the central relationship is um, between the Doctor and the Master, and it's such a gendered relationship, and the way that's sort of refracted through time, um, the, the way the Master is, I suppose, a uh, a masculine presence sort of patriarchal presence at every era of history they stop into. And there's something there. It doesn't really come across in the episode, but... I, I think, particularly with the two spy falls more than most episodes, there's so much happening in them that you can kind of tick a lot of boxes in them because there's just so much going on in these two episodes. They're an explosion of things, much more so than... You look at other Chibnall episodes like the Sarango Conundrum and they're so small. You know, there's so little on their mind and there's so little they're doing. And the cast of characters is quite small. The sets, there's not that many environments. Spyfall is the opposite of that. There's so many things going on that, like, you can say this is happening and that's happening and they're being represented and that's theme is there, which is true. But if you, like, fill up any text with enough stuff, you're going to flag some of those things. It's to what extent is it being explored and how is it being explored? They said it in the clip. It's a collision of stuff. It's, yeah. it's lots of things happening at the same time. I wonder, this might come up in one of the other commentary clips, but um, I wonder about the intentionality behind casting a male master. Because obviously, Shivan was very deliberate that he would only do Doctor if he could cast a woman as the Doctor. Yeah. Um, and the master seems to be a character you know, given his relationship with the classic series and which bits of the classic series he relates to. Um, the Master's very much an important figure to him, and he's given all the important beats of this series to the Master. So I wonder how that intentionality breeds out. Especially considering the Master was just a woman and Chibnall has co chose to constantly make the Master a man again. Yeah, so th that seems very deliberate to me. Possibly the 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 uh, again on quite a surface level, he wants the heroic to be feminine and the villainous to be masculine, which is um, uh, a bit of a reduction, I think, of um, of the narrative. But it, it, again, aesthetically, that that reads as a feminist text. Yeah, it's it's a, it's that surface level thing again, isn't it? If he is thinking that way, he doesn't speak to it here. But it's like I feel the more interesting and empowering thing would to be have women villains and women heroes and women of all different stripes and, you know, different interior drives doing very different things in the narratives. I feel like that would be a lot more than the good woman triumphs over the bad man, which feels a little more where we are uh, at this point in, in the era, at least. Kind of male feminist stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Series 13 has a woman villain in... Uh, Aswok, so... And Azure, don't forget. It's good how Azure doesn't do anything and isn't a part of the narrative. I like that. Because um, it's interesting, because um, the the shift from the master to Missy, that gender realignment is... That's a gendered narrative thing, right? Yeah. Um, Missy's gender matters to the story. 
um, you know, is the future going to be all girl? And uh, and that that's got. I don't think it's it's a clean message or it's saying something obvious and specific, but um, the fact of Mrs. Gender is a narrative thing that matters and it influences the character and it influences her relationship to the other characters. Um, I maybe my favourite scene in the show is the the Doctor and Bill sitting on the roof of the university. Yeah, yes, yeah, eating their chips and chatting about. Um, uh, the relationship to the master and the doctor flips pronouns, you know, half a dozen times while he's telling the story about them both as kids. Yeah. Um, and gender's important there. The same way gender's important to Bill and gender's important to Clara. Um, it, it, there's, you can see the intent swinging behind all of it. It, where here, it just, just doesn't, quite come through in the stories you're talking about it feels more complicated and like part of the actual stories uh, and that's like part of the casting uh, maybe if that makes sense yeah i see what you mean yeah let him <laughs> <laughs> the Evil bloke session. coming in and ruining <laughs> no. it i think this is uh, we were chatting about this for him putting that costume on it's a really I will find it, you. It, it sends it's such a shudder down yourself as totally. the actor and also to see it yeah. on somebody as well it's just it's, you know, with hindsight, it's such, it's such a symbol of such horrific moments. There's so much weight to it yeah, just by him yeah, wearing yeah. that costume. Yeah, and for him to put it on, I think, yeah. you know, it's, re- it's, so, it's so dark. I really, I really sort of weighed up whether you could do that or whether that was tasteless or whether that uh, yeah, was... Yeah, I, I mean... And I think it's the, that thing it of... It wasn't. The symbolism no, of it yeah. being... And it actually gives the master that absolute sense of evil that he will treat it as a dress-up. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that actually that's what makes it refra- worse. A reflection of yeah. him. Yeah, not, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. I noticed they didn't actually bring up race at all there. Yeah, they're, they're circling around it. I think they're, they're kind of grasping for what to say or what they feel they can say, what they feel comfortable saying. It's quite interesting to listen to because they're just, just trying to just sort of float around the issue without actually, I guess, penetrating it or like alluding to the, the Nazis or anything in particular. I thought it was interesting how they kind of talk, <laughs> how I see fans talk. Like, the master is so evil that he would do this. You're, you're the one writing it. <laughs> like, I don't think it reflects more on the master. I think it reflects more on Chibnall for making this story and choosing to do that and then casting Sasha and having him be the one to do that. I don't really think it's saying much about the character so much as it is saying about the writer. But he seems to feel differently. I can see the intent there that you have this big transgression on screen and you're using that to... Um, say how transgressive the character doing it is, but it um, it does feel it, it's something that that a bunch of white creatives have put on uh, an actor of color, which isn't quite the same. I, again, I can see this being handled better and um, by somebody else. I, I think that idea of using the political social transgressiveness of that moment as a big vomp look at how evil this character is thing. Um, but specifically Nazis, in specifically this context, the context being that the Master's a goofy, you know, cartoon villain. The Master's not a Nazi, is the thing. 
Yeah, that's the thing. Like when you're using actual genocide and stuff to, to basically enhance how dark your your cartoon villain is, like you say. I mean, at the end of the day, like a made up space alien. <laughs> like no matter how evil you make him or how many like people you say he's murdered, like I mean, it, you know, it, it's just it's still basically just kind of a, a fantasy like aimed at children. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to be uh, disparaging here, but yeah. I'm reminded of that clunk of a line in Let's Kill Hitler. I knew that episode would come <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Which I, uh, hands up, I really quite like. But that that line where they go, you know, forget Hitler. We've got the worst criminal in the history of forever here. And it's River Song because she killed the doctor. Like, oh. I mean, honest, I, I, that line, like, I, I don't want I'm not going to go on the tangent of let's kill Hitler defense here. But, like, in that episode, like, the test selected, they're clearly, like, they're wrong, right? Because obviously killing the doctor does not make anyone the worst in anything. So there's, like, yeah. there's at least a degree of, I guess, resistance to this idea of worshipping, fetishizing the doctor, like, making the doctor and these fictional characters, like, there's some huge thing comparable to actual real life genocides. But it's still, Moffat still make, made the choice to, like, write the episode about Hitler at the end of the day so like you can still accuse it of crassness in many ways that's the thing that's i think one of the um valid one of the criticisms of Moffat that i will personally allow is that even though um a story will be making some statement and um, the surface level aesthetics seem to be pointing in the opposite direction right and it's easy to read yeah um the 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 surface level misdirection is the actual direction um, and I think that's a fair cop I think Let's Kill Hitler in particular does that Do you notice with this clip it's the second time in the episode Chibnall has gone like ooh was I crossing a line was I being a little too faithless <laughs> here was I allowed to do this guys it's like it's so childish and it really rankles with me because so much of this era's messaging is about responsibility and you know we Look what look at the strides we've made, you know, in representation and look what we're doing, you know, now. Look look at what we can put on screen now, look who we're hiring, look at all this responsibility we're handling so well. And then here's the showrunner himself going, Ooh, was it okay that I made him a Nazi? I think this is the real Chibnall coming out, because often when he's promoting the show and talking about it, he, he feels like he's presenting it in such an anodyne way. When he was promoting Series 11, he's like, oh, the Doctor's a pillar of hope, this is about hope and love and blah, blah, blah. But then sometimes, occasionally, just the real cynical, <laughs> kind of like edgy Chibnall pokes out. This is the Chibnall I remember from the Tortured special features. This is the, ooh, can I make a sexy cyber woman, you know, that... Oh, is she going to die and Yanto's going to get all angsty about it? Yes. <laughs> but also look at her cool bikini costume or what if I had a bunch of cannibals do crazy things? You know, it feels much more in sync with that previous work of his. Chibnall's a Torchwood writer and he manages to pare down the silliness to get Broadchurch and he manages to pare down the seriousness to get Doctor Who. <laughs> um, but it, fundamentally, everything he's writing is Torchwood. It's that you know, the central value is of, of an episode is usually this big shock or this big, well, this transgression, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there is something really interesting there. The Cyberwoman's a really interesting title, I think, because it, what it throws up immediately is surely half of all Cybermen are Cyberwomen. So why is this one different? Yeah, again, gender. Gender, 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 gender. Um yeah. But that transgression, that that instinct to break the toys, um, I think is quite an interesting thing. It's one of the nuggets of Chibnall's writing that actually sort of tickles me. The thing that he goes, uh, how can I do this just differently? 
but again, it's not got. Often it ends at that shock value and that that transgression without getting to the depths of what it actually means. Yeah, the, the tension of values uh, of Chibnall here is really interesting. Yeah, I don't believe a word of all the pillar of hope stuff he says. Mm, same. I don't think he's an actual pillar of hope person. Um, I, I think he he really has to strain to put the positive outlook into the show. Uh, Spyfall's line about um, darkness never prevails <laughs> is the absolute pinnacle of I don't actually believe anything, so just hold on to your boots, I'm sure it will work out fine. It's It's tough with him because... A lot of the messaging is so kind of superficial or insubstantial in the episodes that it's it's hard to get a read of how much are you putting in here of yourself. Like Moffat, love him or hate him, he's very hard on his sleeve what he believes. And then he'll expand on it in interviews a lot as well, which Chibnall doesn't do so much. That's why this commentary is a rare treat. So I think with Chibnall, there's that ambiguity where people will wonder, well, does he believe this stuff? Uh, if not, is that okay or is it not okay? There's all this kind of room Whereas, you know, RTD will talk your ear off <laughs> about what he thinks, about what he thinks should go in stories. And so will Moffat. Just a difference in personality. But it does make for awkward conversations uh, about these sort of topics. It's like the flux behind the scenes of yeah. um, trying to describe the story. Going like, so I guess she was in witness relocation. And I guess this was this. It, th- there's no, so far as I can tell, and... This might be more in his personality and how he talks about his writing. Um, but so far as I can tell, there's no clear point. There's no meaning behind it all that oh, yeah. drives it all. He prefers raising questions than answering them. He does the transgression and then just goes, ooh, look at yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which, that's even, um, you know, the timeless child stuff. is just adding a couple of question marks and going, cool, we're I'm off now. And not tying any of it up. Because he's raising the questions, he's not actually telling a story. How did you learn about Nor? Did you just know about her? No, I was I was reading up on various things and various women and thinking, right, how do we do this across history? Yeah. And, um, and I, I'd never her. heard of her. No, no, no she, she came up and it may have been she was in a research document that, that the, the, the script team did. Um, I forget now, but... Um, but uh, yeah, and, and instantly it was like, well, why don't we know this story? It was one yeah. of those stories where you just thought, wow, that's extraordinary. And the fact that, that you know that there is a, a statue of her in London at a certain point, but you you never know it was there. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, again, it just felt like, okay, let's bend the story to include her because she's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Not where I wanted to be. You'd think, why isn't there a film about her? That's what I... Or why aren't there yeah. several films about yeah. her? Oh, yeah, and several absolutely. TV series and several there novels. There will be now, love. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's Start good. Start something. That statue thing reminds me of the banknote thing. It's like... Yeah. There's a cultural thing of the person that's amazing. I like in this case, at least, that it was born out of a desire to make people more aware of someone just out of... Yeah. Because they found her like, interesting and extraordinary or whatever. Like, I, I, but at the same time, I feel like, in that case, why didn't you just make the story about her? <laughs> like, why, why, why are you just throwing yeah. her in with all this other shit when she's so much more interesting than any of the other shit, you know? I, I agree that it's a good directive to be like, wow, there's this really cool person in history I didn't know about. A lot of other people don't know about. Let's find a way to put them in Doctor Who and get more people to know about them. Like, of course, that's great. Uh, that 
brings in the responsibility thing though more, especially if the mm. figure isn't so well known in other pop culture things. Then you've got kind of a duty to portray them uh, particularly well because there isn't that expanse of all these other portrayals uh, that people can see as well. And I don't think the episode lives up to that responsibility, but I agree that it's a good thing to do to be like, wow, this person was amazing. Let's make more people know about them through the show. There's something here that I'm sure will come up again when we get to Tesla um, about the show writing um, sort of metatextual injustices, as in this isn't a story about Noor's life, but a story about the fact that she's not been recognised, right? The, the the role isn't to... Um, the, the role's basically to fix her story or to put her story on screen when it hasn't been put there before. It's it's writing a historical injustice, but not the actual content of the injustice itself, but the knowledge around it and the iconography. It's fixing the fact that she's not known by just putting her on screen. How, how ironic, of course, to write about a character who's been forgotten by people and end it by erasing her memory. Yeah. I think that, again, that's going to tie into stuff later on, but there's links to the Timeless Children stuff there, right? Where yeah. it's attempting to um, make justice in the history of Doctor Who. Justice for the Morbius Doctors. <laughs> justice for the Morbius Doctors. By putting all these earlier women doctors it's rather than grappling with the complexity of the issue as it exists it's adding some iconography adding some ideas and going here it is um we righted the wrong by sort of ignoring it (laughs) by managing to pretend the wrong didn't exist it's not validating, I think, in the way we were kind of floating around earlier. Like, I get it's a kind of a power of fiction thing, but I think particularly when a figure is lesser known, I, I'm not super comfortable with the let's fix them up thing. Yeah. It's more like, you know how Tarantino does his films where he, like, portrays historical injustice and then, it's, and then he goes, what if we fixed it? And then he does. I think they have such well-known things like the Holocaust, uh, slavery in America, uh, the Sharon Tate murders. They're so well known that I think playing with them more is kind of more understandable to me. Uh, less so when people don't know these figures so much, especially because I think Chibnall overestimates the drive of people to go learn more about figures after seeing a Doctor Who story. I think a lot of people will see the Doctor Who story and absorb that knowledge, and that's kind of it. I, I think he seems to feel like he's the first step, and then people will do the more steps. Some of them will. I'm not sure if that's the most, like he, when he talks about making the show for children or for educational reasons, I'm not sure that's a really informed way uh, to be doing it. Yeah, and part of the nature of stories and their Aristotelian structure and all that is that they kind of come across like, well, I suppose if they're, if, if they're not a complete mess, they come across like finished packages, I guess. Yes. Like whatever's in them has been wrapped up and presented in, in a neat little parcel. Obviously the neatness might vary depending on the writer, but um, at the end of the day, like it, it's complete. So it's not necessarily, I think to, to make someone watch it and then want to go and seek out more, you have to leave you have to, I guess you have to leave some open ends, I guess, and actually like ask the question, make the audience want to find the answer. Amanda b- agrees with you later on. This isn't a Moffat podcast, but um, <laughs> I think that's... Are you sure? Yeah, uh, well, it, it's all a Moffat podcast. We'll never escape. Um, I think that's one of the most interesting things about Hellbent is the way it's 
explicitly not the end of the story. Yeah. Um, but also by the nature of Doctor Who, it ends up being the end of the story and people read it as the end of the story. And I think that's the fact that people read Hellbent as an ending rather than a beginning is the the main source of people's gripes with the story. Um, and that's that's that same tension of whether this this episode of TV is itself um, the whole package or whether it's just a part of it from which people can go on and do more. I think it's a really limited view of TV on display here as a, a medium that serves to make people go to Wikipedia, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the point of it. <laughs> I get it's a funny escalation of phone watching, isn't it? Like he he has this mm. understanding that people are on their phones, and then he's like, "What if I can influence what they're doing on their phones?" It's interesting. That is interesting. It's 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 um, transtextual. It's so interactive. It, it's all over the place. It's this sort of transmedia thing of expecting the story doesn't end on the screen because people are tweeting about it at the same time yeah, yeah. and so the show only half exists in the content of itself and the other half is the twitter reactions and what people google afterwards and what goes trending and oh that is interesting i, I really find that interesting it's so strange I, I it's so interesting yeah search engine optimization as drama <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and that idea of this is what i study um that idea of algorithmic um imperatives and uh this drive of um all media becomes technology and all media becomes data harvesting um that's what spyfall is ostensibly about right yeah mm. it all links together it all links together we did it we made it cohesive <laughs> um just before we move on one little note chibnall mentioned in this clip explicitly that he was looking through like women like he, he was looking through I guess a book or whatever, like, and that's how he found, he came across Noor, like, so that's made, really making explicit the gender thing, like, he, 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 he was specifically looking for women who were playing particular roles, like, I don't know. I love this idea that there are people who are paid to produce binders of women, to produce documents and dossiers <laughs> on historical figures for him to consider including in Doctor Who. I've got a really, really important question to ask you. So I spent a very long time, a very anxious amount of time, for weeks being really, really, really stressed and anxious because I had to speak French. And the stage direction said, the stage direction said, with a perfect accent. <laughs> and I do not speak English very well. So to speak a new language is <laughs> awful. And every time I practiced it, um, I mean, oh. I was so disappointed that wasn't in there. Yeah, where is it? <laughs> it's on the it's it's on the cutting room floor. I know. I'm sorry. Awful. I'm so sorry. stressed. I was so stressed, I'm and sorry. Lee was so nice to me and went. Yeah, no, it sounded really good. <laughs> it was the episode is ten minutes over as is. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's why, not because of the perfect French accent. No, no. No. It's, um, don't take that personally. That's a running, <laughs> oh, that's a running time issue. You've taken it personally mm, and harboured it ever since transmission. Thought. Yeah, I thought with Flux, us three were interested in deleted scenes and things like that a lot. So I just thought that was a bit interesting. I mean, the, the, the idea of deleted scenes will come up again this episode. Very much. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, like, I, get, I have to wonder. I mean, obviously, it's not new or novel for episodes to overrun and stuff that's maybe potentially. Well, not important, but stuff should just get cut and cut and cut. But I do wonder, like, with Chibnall's whole writing style with an episode like this that's so sprawling, you have to wonder, does it maybe lend itself more to overrunning and just having loads of stuff that just gets ripped out, like, willy-nilly? Hmm. Uh, one of my mates is doing a flux edit at the moment, 
um, oh, nice. shout out, shout out, because he listens to this. Um, but that's one of the things that's come really interestingly from that is the way that sprawling nature just doesn't fit into the slots of um, TV. It doesn't fit into the shape of a Doctor Who episode. Um, you know, all the threads of flux. It's not six episodes of TV with a linking story. It's one massive, incohesive mess. Um, and that's, that feels like you can see seeds of that in Spyfall, where it's just too big a clump of ideas that aren't properly connected to each other and don't come back to one point. And I think that that sort of, that lack of structural holisticness probably comes from the same place that doesn't really worry about the aboutness of the story, of actually making it a story. Because if you have a very specific point or a very specific character um, or some central thrust to your story that's driving the whole thing, then naturally it all comes together, right? Yeah. Because it all comes back to that one issue, whatever that is. If you know the final shot of your story is Clara flying away in a diner TARDIS, then everything in the narrative bends towards that purpose, that end goal. And everything is a reflection and exploration of that. But when you don't have a core idea, it it sprawls and it doesn't quite hold together. That's the great joy of fractal storytelling is having all these bits that are superficially disparate but are so linked together. I think it's a really pleasing uh, thing to watch when people pull that off. I think Spyfall is clearly like the trial run for Flux in a way. Like that's where he mm -hmm. developed that style of just like throw everything at the wall, throw the spaghetti at the wall. And he just like settles into that style for all of series 13. I'll be very keen to see that fl Flux edit, by the way. I'm, I'm very fascinated. I wonder if a Spyfall edit could work as one episode or something. Yeah. Because I, I, Spyfall frustrates me because it's so nearly there. And I guess it's the same as Flux. It's much more to my taste than the rest of the era. Because I like big, weird things. I like sprawling ideas so long as they come together at the end. Um, and again, the techno-fascism that uh, Spyfall's about is not just fascinating, but essential, right? It's yeah. it's a thing that needs to be talked about, um, that, that the show, I think, has a responsibility to talk about, especially if it's playing around with ideas of technology and fascism. The fact that it doesn't come together is so endlessly frustrating for me. Yeah, it's that typical thing of this era is it's so much more annoying when there is potential there. In an episode like Saranga, I don't mind hugely if things don't quite work because I'm like, what's the best case scenario for the episode anyway? But something for yeah. like this with so much promise and so many ideas, like Flux, I get so much more invested. And then if it doesn't work, I get so much more let down because... It could have worked. It could have been really interesting. I can't say that for every episode, but Spyfall, yeah, there's actual big ideas and perhaps even big emotions in here. And because Spyfall even almost manages the the climax, right? There's the end note is we've been recording your evil monologues, yeah, and, and therefore we got you using the same trick that you're using, yeah, yeah, you know, using surveillance capitalism. We've caught you admitting to surveillance capitalism yeah it links it links it's uh, there's ideas there but it doesn't actually create meaning in that um the I, uh, first time i saw it i was pretty sure that it would end on sort of a um democratic note of 
the doctor's got this information. She hands it off to the general public, and the public deal with um, in the same sort of way that the silence are dealt with by people at large, rather than um, the doctor actually doing the the doctor sort of the kicking off point um, for a uh, a public flaying. Um, because that, that but, but instead it, it just doesn't manage to create that meaning. There's no yeah. feeling of aboutness in that climactic moment, which should be a summation of everything the story's doing. Barton is my favourite villain of the era, and his you kept clicking agree speech is my favourite <laughs> villainous speech of the era. Like, I do think there was, it was interesting in the hamminess, but it was actually interesting in the ideas as well, uh, partially because of the hamminess. I, I, I liked the stuff floating around in this episode for sure. I think it really could have went somewhere, but I think it's too easy to say there was too much stuff in the episode for it to all work because we've seen there are other episodes, like you're saying, with loads of seemingly disparate things that do make them work together. It's a shame to not have gotten it here and that it's interesting that what the, what the cutscenes are, yeah. Yeah, Silence in the Library has the most stuff of any story ever in. It's got uh, animated... Uh, um, sort of AI run uh, worlds of digital environments. It's got a library that's haunted by shadow ghosts. It's got a time traveling relationship. Uh, it's the whole thing's a TV show in another real life. It's, it's idea upon idea upon idea and it's a yeah. big mess of stuff, but it all comes back to the, the the same couple of core ideas, the same point to it all, the the aboutness, it manages to make it feel cohesive and you don't get lost in the endless string of thoughts. We'll we'll get more into this later, but I wonder if the amount of drafts a story goes through has a big impact on how linked together the different parts end up being. Well Chibnall will talk later about when he writes episodes and stuff like that. But I know with Moffat, the less drafted episodes, to me, generally don't link together as well as the ones he seems to have spent a lot more time on. It's not a rule, but I think there's a linkage there as well. Yeah, I think that's sort of inevitable that your second and third draft are going to be connecting the ideas that you sketched out yeah. at the beginning. These loose things that you threw together based mostly on vibes, you managed to knit them together. Um, and so if... As whispers suggest, production is as um, messy and rushed as uh, as it might be. You'll you'll get it from the horse's mouth soon. Oh, cool! Um, but that I think is a big symptom. Um, the the fact that things don't connect is a symptom of that problem. I think. Before the next clip, there's something I've got to tell you, and I can't actually show you this. I'll explain why. So something happens three times within this commentary. With commentaries, it's very understandable that now and again everyone will stop talking and the episode will just play for a little while. Sometimes it's just a natural lull in the conversation, totally normal. Sometimes everyone gets too engaged with the episode for a second, which is kind of endearing uh, now and again. Some commentaries have kind of longer gaps, which can get a bit frustrating. People are listening for a reason, you know, they... But I, I paid for the Blu-rays and things like that. It's not necessarily a huge deal, but sometimes if there's like a pause of like a minute, uh, it can feel a bit weird. But I've never heard anything like the Spyfall 2 commentary. So what happens is, at the first point, the first example is around 
25 minutes into the episode. There's no talking until 28 minutes through. So there's about three minutes of silence. It sometimes happens. That's pretty long, but it happens. Then later on, 31 minutes to 36 minutes, there's silence again, which is odd. And then at 38 minutes into the episode, well, I'll talk about what screens, what scenes are on screen there. So that's a lot of the Barton and his mum stuff. That's a lot of the Nor resolution stuff, Nazi tower stuff, the master's race or Sasha's race being weaponized in that scene. More stuff like that, Barton's speech. So this stretch from 38 minutes to 49 minutes is completely silent. Silence will fall. (laughs) It's so weird. I've heard so many commentaries and I've never heard anything like that. They just don't say anything. Presumably then because it was edited out? I don't know. I I, I think that makes more sense than them just not even commenting on all this is an awkward silence. Uh, It's so weird, especially because it's those kind of controversial scenes, which they commented on two earlier controversial scenes, but not the Master Race one or some other ones. Quite strange. It's extremely suspicious. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely feels like... So what's in there that they decided to take out? Definitely feels like the, 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 the... The, the bureau has swooped in and, like, chopped out the <laughs> incriminating <laughs> details. Yeah, so I, I've got nothing to show you there, but I thought it was worth bringing up. So what that covers that covers Nor's scenes. It covers the the tower. Uh, some of the tower. The first tower scene, there's stuff on, but the it intercuts back to it, and we don't see stuff in the later. And we, don't, we, see noth- we hear nothing of, like, when the Nazis come up the tower. Uh, for the master. Yeah, the most interesting and really racist bit in the whole episode. Nothing. That's that's so frustrating. Because <laughs> the classic thing with the commentary is if no one's talked for a, a minute or so, someone goes, oh, the episode's just too good. Where <laughs> No one was saying that here. <laughs> There's no way you sit for 11 minutes in silence. Yeah. Wild. Oh, so what did they say? Would that we knew. The fascist. Do they win? Never. It's hard this though, isn't it? It's difficult this. Complicated. It, it, Cause it, yeah, because we in the in the script, uh, obviously the, we, we went forward to see Noor being executed. Yeah, uh, in the uh, woods. Uh, yeah, a, yeah, and her last um, her last words. Um, uh, but actually, in the in the edit of the episode, I kind of felt this was a more appropriate ending. Right. You know, and it was really hard because I don't know, it's, it's, it's really difficult you know, yeah. to, to mm. balance that story because it doesn't end well. But you, I think mm. within this story, you, need you, you want the heroism Absolutely. and the hope yeah. and the strength yeah. of the character. Yeah. yeah. And also I feel like people will go off and yeah. read and research yeah. more. That's Absolutely. the thing. It's like it's yeah. not, Doctor Who's not doing the definitive story you're going, no, actually. From beginning to end. Of yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. Same with Adrian as well, you what hope. Why can okay. things you shouldn't have knowledge of? Because I, I broadly agree with the idea that Doctor Who's not doing the definitive take on a character. Um, that, uh, uh, when it tries to, it ends up being a sort of best-of album rather than anything substantive. Um, but that, oh, that idea that you would write in that darkness never prevails and then cut to... <laughs> the execution of a anti-fascist. Like what? 
God, I would love to see what they shot for that. I would love to even just see the script, like what he wrote, like what was going through his mind putting that on paper. Because I, I, th- I think they're kind of vague about it there, but it was filmed. Uh, we know from the actor's Instagram, she talks about it. Uh, the execution was filmed. It, it was it was cut. It wasn't just like scripted and then they thought, oh, this, you know. They took it out in the actual edit. Yeah. This, 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 is, this is probably nitpicking and just clumsy wording, but I take issue with the idea that her execution couldn't have fit a story about the strength of her character uh, when he said that. Yeah, I, I, it's like, it, it's less about the actual, I guess, the, the meaning and the strength. It's more just about the tone of like the episode and just keeping, thing, keeping things balanced in Chibnall's words. I don't like either possibility here. I find that having the execution in the episode would have been tasteless, especially with that dialogue there. But I find the complete not factoring in it at all also kind of weird in how it frames her story. And I find the overarching decisions of like people will Google it and all that a bit weird as well. I think this story just doesn't work for me. However, it tries to incorporate Nor. I, I, I don't think Chibnall was handling it in, in a good way in what was filmed or what was edited. And it makes darkness without that end note, which presumably would have been some uh even though she died she yeah helped win the war she got an asteroid yeah you know presumably that would have been the yeah she got an asteroid um presumably that end note would have capped things off in a slightly more cohesive way but as it is that darkness never prevails line ends up just feeling so ironic yeah because you hear that line and then you do go off and do the googling and you go oh oh she was caught and executed cool I think it would have been kind of cheap to be have like, and thanks to modern data, you know, in moderation, we can all learn about <laughs> uh, Nor today. But there's not even an attempt at linking, you know, anything. It's like, I don't know what way they could have done this that would have worked. It's just the flaw and, you know, like he said, we had to bend the story to include her, he said. It's the whole mindset. Like, you, you have to wonder, like, just so many questions. Like, how does, like, how does any of this happen? I guess it's just that sprawling writing style where intentionality and cohesiveness just don't factor in. It's how you get these kind of insane contortions. You could have just not had the dialogue of the fascists do they win. You could have avoided this kind of idea by having her talk about something else or something. Like, he, 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 it's like he starts the beat and then you go off and you learn how she was executed and, you get the weird irony that's somehow there. Like, he didn't have to set things up that way. And I, I kind of, I feel there's a tension between Doctor Who isn't the definitive version of the story, as he says there, and then earlier on, I couldn't believe there were no other movies about her. Isn't that like saying you are kind of presenting at least an initial definitive version of the story? If you've identified that there aren't other ones in pop culture, doesn't that kind of place more importance onto yours? It's some kind of definitiveness? I think it's like, First impressions are important in in that way. So it's like not necessarily the definitive, but like it's going to be a lot of people's first exposure to whatever it is you're talking about. So and that's kind of importance and brings its own responsibilities. Because that's what's fascinating about Rosa, right? Is that it's both trying to be the whole story and being such a cursory glance at the actual history. That, that you end up coming away feeling like, or the audience feels like they've been told the whole story. Uh, they don't do the Googling and they come up with not just a sort of morally, but actually factually, historically inaccurate version of events where, sure, they know the bus driver's name now, but like they've not grasped the actual political um, intent behind any of it. Um, I think it's so 
metatextually just fascinating that that they're saying in the commentary, right, that the point of this episode is for people to go away and Google the the actual history as if the villain of the episode isn't Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that idea that that tech companies controlling the information that the whole world has access to is a Doctor Who alien villain level threat. And they're sitting there in the commentary going, but if you go and Google it, you'll get the true story and that's your real education. It's not on us to teach you. The algorithm will do it. So bizarre. It's it's uh, such an ironic story unintentionally in so many ways, isn't it? I think it's just what happens when you don't really commit <laughs> or necessarily believe in anything in particular. I guess it's just that stirring around the tea leaves and not necessarily coming into it with a point of view. We're not asking for something didactic, but you want some kind of focus. You know, even it's not like the theme doesn't have to be like a declaration, but it kind of has to be a complete sentence is, is kind of how I feel. Yeah. Someone with more free time than me is going to end up writing something genuinely really interesting about um, sort of Barthian death of the author um, reads on Chibnall's era because he throws ideas together and those ideas stick to each other like techno-fascism, even though he's probably not intentionally linking those ideas. Um, and there's so much that can be read into stuff and through these kinds of behind-the-scenes things, you see how little of it is an intentional um, attempt to connect ideas and give meaning. It's all just asking questions, and the audience sort of divine the answers to those questions from a combination of the episode tea leaves and, you know, Googling it afterwards. I would cite Oliver himself here, who uh, I believe tweeted something about how... The 2022 Gallifrey One convention, I assume you were meaning some Matt Stevens comments, were like a oh, yeah. intrusion of objectivity into fandom spaces, which were defined a lot more by taking these clusters of story points in Chibnall stories and forming their own reads out of kind of the vapidity of them. And I think in listening to these commentaries, we get a kind of similar thing where when you actually hear the kind of aimlessness of the writer's inspiration, it kind of throws the ball back at you to be like well you know the 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 thesis statement wasn't really here it's more what you can make of it which i i, I love so much when you actually get to hear chibnall speak in hearing or streven speak the lack of focus in what they're doing i think is really interesting because it it kind of empowers the fans it's in the objective statements from the execs are always interesting yeah not to derail things with bringing up Thasmin, but um, the fact that there has been a sort of recession of the, the idea of Thasmin from something that um, was definitely intended the whole time was just being played close to the chest to, in real time, that shrinking to something that um, that wasn't planned in the first series but was developed afterwards to the Eve script, the, the narratives then changed to being about how the, the actors intended it the whole time, even if the writing didn't. It's so interesting to see that 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 worldview of the show, that perspective, sort of shrink and morph to fit these tiny little, really quite small bits of objectivity that in any other era would be, you know, commonplace 
things that we heard in interviews or whatnot. But each of them is so disruptive to the overall narrative. It's really interesting. I think the link to Spyfall and political readings of Chimnal Ear episodes is, I think a lot of fans really like appeal to authority in their takes on episodes. Like they prefer to say Chimnal was meaning this or Moffat was meaning this to saying, you know, here's my cool reading of either the Daleks or Arachnids in the UK or whatever. I think people kind of default uh, just because a lot of the way we talk about stories is so writer-centric, people will kind of default to this view of, well, obviously they're meaning this. And so they're kind of divining intent out of this kind of specter they're making of the writer rather than kind of saying, hey, I'm the writer of this essay or I'm the writer of this uh, video or whatever and this is my reading, uh, which I find a much more honest and interesting way to talk about stories a lot of the time, to be like the person to write the big political essay on the Saranga conundrum or whatever. It's not about Chibnall intended this. It's about look at what this does or look at what I can make this do even. So I feel like the Thasman people or the people who had a certain political reading of Spyfall who came at it more on that way of, you know, look at what I've linked together or what I can link together, they fare off better because what a, what a, whatever objectivity the execs can bring into it can't really harm that because that's not what they're talking about. They're not saying Chibnall intended this. They're saying this. So, yeah, it's interesting how these commentaries or convention interviews can interrupt readings that are very focused on this kind of phantom writer statements that haven't actually been said, but they're saying they clearly mean this because they can always come out and say something one day that can complicate that. And again, that's important. You know, those choices of do you wet, does the doctor wet their memories? Mm. What I really never wanted to do was rob Ada of her agency. Yeah. No, not to say like the doctor helped her discover oh, yeah. computers. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so that it suggests like, that she didn't come mm. up with No, it's yeah, like she's course. a brilliant woman. She came up with this. Everything she did, she did herself. Which is that speech, obviously, that you have to do. What you can really do, computers start with you. I love stuff like that. I love those kind yeah. of speeches. When when things are kind of emotionally led, I always and the like when things homage timelines and projection mm. and And about real people as yeah, well. I find so it, yeah, I find it, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's the privilege of doing this show that you do that and then you feel like people just then connect with those characters and go out and find out more and it's like it's sort of I don't know re-lighting re them in mm, passing the, the baton yeah on exactly and, oh you yeah. should find out about this person or you should you know homage timelines and projections what I didn't want to do is rob her of her agency when I wrote this scene in which she is against her will mind wiped by the doctor as she's begging not to be. But but good thing her agency is intact, huh? It's that spyfall irony <laughs> again. Spyrony. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird to me the way he thinks like a fan. Like he thinks inside the script he's making. Like he's thinking of the fictional Ada. Like, oh, I need to keep mechanically that she doesn't learn from. But he's not kind of, he doesn't, at least he's not saying he's thinking about the actual framing of it. It's like when he talks about the Nazi master stuff from the context of the fiction inside the script. I find that such a strange way to talk about the story. And we saw it in the Flux story breakdown video as well. He's like saying, well, I guess it could be this or it could be that. It's such an odd approach to talking about your writing to me. It's it's sort of like he, it's, he's coming out from a perspective as as long as her, I guess, historical timeline is like maintained and we don't imply that the Doctor inspired her to do this or that, then it doesn't matter what 
like the situation is with the actual character in the script that I'm like that I'm portraying her as in this episode. It, it's like I guess it's just like throwing out the idea of the script meaning anything in particular in itself, as long as it's subservient to I guess some abstract idea of a, a broader timeline. And it's so deeply conservative, right? Because knowing the the, the amazing stuff that Ada Lovelace does is you know the thinking and creating and the actual aspects of her character that create her influence on the world having the doctor inspire that doesn't mean she didn't do it it just means it happened or the show's implying it happened in a slightly different way that the inspiration came from the um the, the fictional side of the story rather than um, the historically factual version of events, and that it's so interesting that that's what needs preserving, and it, it's it's a really fanish impulse as well. Yeah, but the idea that what needs preserving is the exact set of circumstances that led Ada to come up with these ideas. The idea that it's a violation of her agency if the inspiration that she received anyway in life came from a slightly different source. Because it's not about her character, it's not about what she does and what she thinks, it's about the exact nature of the timeline and the um, the precise positioning of historical pawns. And again, that's Rosa, isn't it? And Villa Diodati as well, actually, that comes up again there too. Like the whole thing, words matter. Like if it, it, you know, it, it's fine for like a Cyberman to attack them and for servants to get slaughtered and whatever. But if any of the poets die, then the entire world will be thrown off its axis. In a weird way, it kind of reminds me of like a expanded universe, big finishy kind of lorey way of storytelling, where it's kind of it's thinking of these people as the characters in like the in the Doctor Who story more than like the historical figures that we're portraying and messaging in a certain way. It's like. Well, she has the paralysis, so I can jam in Doctor Who's story there. That makes sense. That feels like a kind of big finishy, we can insert the story here thing. And then it's like, oh, but to keep the law all intact, you know, so to keep it that River doesn't recognize this Doctor mm-hmm. or or whatever, uh, we have to make them forget. So we use the the old classic mind wipe to keep the law intact. It's it's And there seems to be no consideration of how they're actually framing this real figure through that kind of storytelling it's it's like caring more about the mechanics within doctor who's fiction which i think are less important than how you're actually portraying the real person in the fiction you're making it's it's like putting a big mind wipe before the first doctor yeah um so that mechanically it all holds together and you can't be accused of it not making literal sense because if you squint the sci-fi works um, when the actual issue is about meta narrative and character and the implications of it, the meaning, the aboutness, um, but instead it's just moving all these pieces around to make the mechanics work. And I think with mind wipes coming up so much and the cavalier attitude towards wiping people's memories and memory itself, I guess, I guess it links together in the sense of it, it devalues lived experience in a way, yeah. and just the idea of like mm-hmm. the way in which actual. Uh, phenomenological experience of like, life and of stories or whatever uh, gets just kind of thrown out the wayside it, because we're just looking at this abstractly as a story is like a list of facts rather than something that these characters are going through and I guess that's how you that's how writers become okay with just wiping people's memories willy-nilly and not really confronting like the horror of that like to, to quite as big a degree 
to, to, to have the doctor just cavalierly wipe people's memories all the time, you know, and not address that at all. The other weird thing about it, and we'll see this in some other episodes, is it's so inconsistent. It's not like Doctor Who always treats the historical figures, oh, we got to mind wipe them. It's not even like this era. It's not even like this series always treats historical figures that way. So it's such a, like, unnecessary move to do, because if you, why, you don't, you can't care about it this much if you're not flagging it in other writers' scripts, as we'll see with Tesla. Yeah, because Tesla makes it part of his life. We don't feel like the stuff he goes on to invent after this is invalid or doesn't matter because because the Doctor was in some way involved in it. He's a person in the world of the story, and the events of this story have inspired him to go and create stuff, and that's just aspects to his character the, because that episode treats him like a person who exists, a material thing, an entity, rather than just a a bit of history. Yeah, I, I so much feel that this kind of humiliating, patronizing move of erasing a memory and then kind of cooing at her and saying, you're going to do great things, this kind of very maternal thing is so much more a discrediting move than just having, ooh, I've got an idea for a science thing from that crazy person I met. That's just like a cute Doctor Who thing. It happens all the time in stories. I don't know why Chibnall is so offended by it right here and not Later in the series, like not in Diodati or not in Tesla. It's a weird hill to die on, especially when it's so selective and not consistent. It, it's picking up on, as a lot of things in this era, it's picking up on one loose idea from the RTD era, celebrity historicals, and it's treating that like biblical truth. Yeah, and you know, the thing where um, uh, either Dickens doesn't have time to write anymore. Because um, he's going to die soon, so he, he won't have time to create all these new works. That's right, yeah. Or the way that um, Agatha Christie um, forgets the whole events. You know, those are sort of neat things. And I guess the way the way that Vincent makes such a impactful deal out of the fact that uh, he simply won't create more works because his life is more complex than can be dealt with in a Doctor Who story. Yeah, this era treats those little moments of, you know, historical neatness or little character moments as if that's how it has to work. We have to wipe that village from the Witchfinders off the map because otherwise history wouldn't make sense, guys. They would have a different history to us. It strikes me that most of those previous examples are like the writer is factoring in a situation in history where it makes sense for them to like forget. Like in The Unquiet Dead, it's that well, Dickens dies soon. So having the adventurer at this point in his life, you know, cleanly tidies that loose end up. There's no issue of him going and writing about it because we've said it at a point he's going to die soon. Or, you know, Agatha Christie has those amnesiac spouts or whatever. So therefore, she's not going to remember the story. They're looking at something in the figure's life and then going, well, the Doctor Who story could make sense to be forgotten here. But in Spyfall, it's just like they're brute forcing the mind wipe. Like, uh, there's not a natural reason for Ada to forget something she did right there unless they're making it the paralysis thing, so we've got a mind wiper. But the other ones, it's like we've found a point where it makes sense for the figure to not talk about something crazy that happened to them. But here it's just like, let's wipe their memories. And in Vincent, that's a really deliberate point about the character, but it, it's not always something that matters. In the Shakespeare one, the, it's just a thing that happened to Shakespeare in-universe, and who cares, right? <laughs> it does not matter. 
We mentioned earlier Chibnall's kind of obsession with, I guess, metatextual injustices, and it just seems to link all link back to stuff like, oh, I need to write a story that fixes up the Morbius Doctors. You know, that, 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 I guess obsession with like clarifying and just like making sure that these little, really quite meaningless things fit together, and prioritizing that over making actual story that, I guess, functions in its own right. I think he's on a wavelength. A thing I felt quite a lot is that he is actually on a wavelength with fans of the era. Because you see a lot when when you um, talk about Flux being a big incoherent mess, people will go, ah, but technically it makes sense. Um, like, <laughs> it doesn't uh, work. <laughs> it doesn't. But it's like, the, the, do you remember the thing in Flux where Swarm and Azura are collecting up people to plug into a machine to make a time bridge to go to the... The, the, the division? The division. The division, yeah. That's what it's called. Um... Do you remember that whole thing? And uh, it's got no point to be in the story. It takes up like half an episode and it's meaningless. It's entirely meaningless. It means nothing. It goes nowhere. But people will go, ah, but how else were they meant to get to Division if they weren't building a time bridge out of the time energy of these people? It makes sense in the universe. It's funny. I hate to do the Moffat thing, but so many of his stories like skip steps like that intentionally because mm-hmm. it narratively hangs together from the ideas and what the character journeys are that he'll just skip entire steps that other stories would mechanically go through methodically. And it works fine for some viewers because they understand, oh, well, the theme of the story is that the character arc is that. So therefore, yeah, it doesn't really matter what happened right there because they got to the next point. But for other people, it's like, how could you possibly not show you know, the person waking up and walking a few... St- Do you remember um, the third Christian Bale Batman movie back in 2012? People went insane over the fact that Batman, whose, like, big character trait is he's crazily, almost supernaturally resourceful. Uh, how could he possibly have gotten quickly from <laughs> some prison somewhere to Gotham? This makes no sense. How could Batman possibly travel somewhere to somewhere else? We needed to have seen as the subplot... How, you know, what Jeep did he ride on into the city? How did he get the plane to Gotham? I remember, I thought it was so weird of all the criticisms to make of that movie <laughs> that people had such an issue with. We didn't see how Bruce got back to Gotham. I feel that sense. It's like Chibnall is the sort of writer that would show how Bruce got back to Gotham. And Moffat, yeah. Moffat is the sort of writer that wouldn't. And people often will have a preference uh, for what they would like better in stories there. It's like um, uh, Amy and Clara changing careers. Yeah. Yeah. How could, a, how could a nanny possibly become a teacher? It doesn't make any sense. You have to do training for that. And we never got a story about her doing teacher training. It holds together off the character, obviously. It's, it's, it's even more because the model becoming a writer is one thing. Like, that is a career change. A nanny becoming a teacher, it's like so... It, they Looking after kids, there's such a link there. Yeah. It never seemed the slightest bit strange to me. Do they, people not know, like, like any, anyone who's had this kind of career path in life? It's not uncommon. This one. And, like, just, who cares? <laughs> Even if it didn't hold together. Like the Amy thing. Like, Amy becoming a writer doesn't naturally follow from uh, her previous career, even if it does naturally follow from her character. Yeah. Um, but, oh my god, who cares? She's a, she's a writer now. Whatever. <laughs> Obviously, some people do care, and it's like Chibnall's writing is... It clicks more with them uh, for caring about the mechanics of that stuff. Uh it's a different mindset. Uh, it's interesting, but I think a lot of the frustrations of this era are this kind of very different style and storytelling, which I think is a little bit intangible in that I don't see people talking specifically about this thing so much, but I think it's a big reason 
fans of the Moffat era or the Chibnall era will kind of wrangle with the other eras. Like, the woman who fell to Earth literally explains the Sonic. It has this whole speech and it shows the creation of the Sonic. It's my Sonic Swiss Army knife. You can do X, Y, Z. Like, from that, I found that moment weird in that first episode. And just thinking now, it's it's part of this whole explanation thing. Like, this does that. And from here, we go there. And it's all very mechanical, uh, which I can see really appealing to certain minds. But it, it washes off me. Yeah. This was one of the... I feel like this is one of the first times that I was sat and still mm. throughout ever yeah, playing the Doctor. Absolutely, yeah. It's, Unless it's, I was hiding. Yeah. Like that was the, that was yeah, the yeah, only yeah. time Which we were sat stressful. and still, but in this it was... If you're seeing... This is second series 13. This is what I was... It's like the, the place you take a character once you've done that first the first act is the beginning of the your doctor's second act I yeah think, you know. i just think it's interesting for him to talk in like the big storytelling epochs of his era like that like this is the second act of the character the doctor now will sit down and not move <laughs> sometimes um we're gonna get into the big emotions with the doctor here i just think it's really interesting uh, to get it from Chibnall himself, that kind of thing. I think it, it shows where the bar is, doesn't it? Like, this is second series 13. She sits down sometimes without <laughs> moving. She's sad sometimes. Like, when you, I mean, when you think about, like, the, just the sheer range and journeys that other doctors would go on within their first series and, like. First episodes, even. Yeah. Like, you know. Uh, In broad strokes, you can sort of see it that this feels like moving into the second act of the character, the tone's shifted, it's more serious now. Oh, it does, yeah. But uh, there's nothing substantive in the first act, right? Yeah. I've said before, uh, nothing frustrates me more than when someone is, like, pitching the book series they're definitely going to write one day, and they're describing this epic story, and they're like, so that's six books in. Yeah. The first five books are all setting that up. Wait, no, just tell the story. A, a TV critic I like, um, Alan Seppenwall, talks about this a lot, how these days a lot of shows, their whole first season is like their pilot or their premiere. It's like a premise season. They'll do this whole, you know, eight episode run or whatever to explain the premise of the show. And then in season two, they will start the story. How this is so common in TV now and it infuriates him having seen so much TV to see the interest, industry storytelling, like take a step back. Like, like I, uh, the... The first episode of The Shield or The Sopranos or so many shows, like, we'll do the whole thing that other shows will take a whole season to do. Yeah. It, it, it is the whole first setup and then the story happens. But there's this impulse you see in so much television now to protract it out. And it's it's like this mechanical thing we're talking about with Chimno. Like, the first episode kind of explains the Sonic and the Doctor to an extent. And then the second episode is about getting the TARD. This is things we used to get in one act in an episode, you know. Mm-hmm. But in this era, it's belabored and protracted out so much i guess it is really relevant and it is kind of modern tv like how chibnall and streamers wanted it to be because a lot of other tv does this now but i don't think it's good i think protracting stuff out like that i think my guess is just that it's a symptom of not having much in the way of actual ideas like you don't know what to do with your premise so you just spend a whole season setting up the premise you know you don't know what the hell to actually do with the doctor so you just spend a whole season getting the tardis and just belaborly introducing us to every last little random bit of the doctor and the premise i think you remember our series five it felt off to the races like where an rtd series would wait to do the arc stuff in like the penultimate episode we were, we were getting that so early on you know big movements yeah. in the series arc or like series eight like it's like deep breath was rushing through stuff so we could get to danny and into the dalek and really kickstart clara's story there like it, it, it there was so much to say in some of these series that it's like the showrunner is excited to bang 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 you know move through it quickly 
series 11, it's just like we're kind of wallowing around. That shot panning up from the Doctor to the crack on the ceiling of the... Byzantium, yeah. That That is such a seismic shift in the way structure of series is work, mm. um, where suddenly the series arc has come crashing into this story and taking it over. This sort of endless, all-consuming arc presence, this serialization is literally expanding and consuming everything it touches. That's so interesting and so... Uh, the, uh, the Moffat quote is... Um, delayed gratification be damned or whatever yes <laughs> uh, do it now if if it's fun do it now because <laughs> why not a writer can come up with the new ideas i always a lot of writers say this put all your ideas in your first thing you know then you'll make up ones for your second thing there's there's no reason to hold off on an idea you're just handicapping yeah your own stories i, I think of series 11 and resolution we have 10 or 11 episodes which are like this is doctor who and how doctor who works mm-hmm. and then spyfall Two, so two episodes into the second act, now the Doctor gets sad. It's like, what are we doing here? Why this immense slowdown? And I think it's such a shame, um, just that that line where Jodie says she's not had a chance to sit down yet and just have an actual emotional moment. That's a real shame. It's taken all this time. It's taken into the beginning of the second act. Yeah. It took nine episodes of series 11, which is a huge amount of television. Think how much other shows have done, you know, with smaller budgets, you know, or different cast of characters in that amount of time. It took nine episodes for Ryan and Graham to really have, like, the next beat in their storytelling, which is, oh, I do respect you. Let's, you know, fist bump. That's nine episodes. Other Doctor Who episodes would do all that in less than an episode and then complicate the relationship on and go on to do different things with it. Also worth noting here, I think, that 13 getting her first sitting down moment here and the first moment for emotions and stuff is spurred by the master and her relationship with the master. And the implication with that is that her relationships with the companions that she's been with for like 12, 13 episodes by this point are not like substantial enough to actually motivate any kind of inner conflict or anything like that. It's only when the master, the law character comes back is it when things get interesting with the doctor. The next clip is about that. So that that performance from Sasha was also another it, it, the layer that he brings to the master there of emotional truth and pain is so fantastic. Yeah, mm. it's a gift for you know you okay? the writer, and it opens up the master yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, and opens up your doctor, I think. You know, and to sort of. I'm fine. Why don't you ever share? The trauma is so personal. Really opens up the master. This is an opened up master compared to the masters we've had before. Yeah, and the kind of unspoken thing there is that we've got on this beat before in a huge way, in a way several series explored. You know, the Doctor's home planet and people are destroyed. It's odd that it's not brought up at all. Yeah, we've we had that for like seven series for so many years. Uh, it's odd to me that that's not remarked on at all. But the thing, like uh, Gig was saying, that the master opens up the Doctor. It's interesting and kind of does frame the companions in a weird way. I laughed when the fam showed up in that shot just then, <laughs> just like standing around with that tr- tr- trademark, like massive space between each of them. And just like just being so utterly like irrelevant to the show, just standing off in the distance. Five planets, you barely said a word. The doctor just going around in complete silence. God, it's so bad. God, the fam are so bad. For all the issues with how Chibnall writes the master, I do really get a sense that he respects the master. He respects this character a lot more than other characters. The things he gets him to do and like the impact 
he has the master have on the doctor, I get this sense of weightiness uh, to him riding the master that I don't get with how he thinks of Yaz or a lot of other characters, which is kind of interesting. Maybe it's he, he seems to have an interest in old Doctor Who, like the Morbius Doctor stuff, the master too. I think it's fascinating that he seems to respect the character. The companions feel kind of like obligatory presences, whereas bringing in the master and stuff is like Chibnall's, I guess, fan wanker kicking in and his opportunity to write all this like angsty dialogue, like, oh, it's the pain in my heart, Doctor, or you you are nothing. Uh, I guess just that inner Torchwood fan, I guess, of Chibnall, yeah. just kind of wanting to write all that kind of kind of edgy nonsense. Absolutely fascinating in a way I can't quite describe that she's holding a confession dial in that scene. That that's what the projections recorded on and in the script. It, it it might not literally be a confession dial, but it's referenced that it is um confession dial esque or whatever in the script. And so the fact that he is drawing directly on the aesthetics of series nine, which have this more complicated master relationship and the more complicated companion relationship. And Gallifrey. And it's drawing on both of them aesthetic. Uh, yeah, and Gallifrey again. Um, and uh, a version of Gallifrey that the Doctor's grown beyond. So he's, he's connected it to that series intentionally. Um, and just, I guess, gone in a totally different direction with it. What's the disconnect? There's something about the pocket universe or something that Chibnall got inconsistent with Series 9. What was that? Yeah, it was in a pocket universe after Dare the Doctor. Yes. Hellbent, they're like, we got out. We're at the end of the universe. And I've not asked why, because it would make them feel smart. And then in Spyfall, it's like, oh, they were back. They were still in their pocket universe, so I blew them up. Ha-ha. And that was the big <laughs> Yes, I remember now, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so interesting. The... The, the, the way he's... Because he's clearly, like you said, fascinated with the Master conceptually, and I guess iconographically, um, but isn't really concerned about the character. He talks about how much... Um, he talks about like, the, the emotional complexity of um, the lines that Sasha's doing. And the last time we saw that confession dial with the Master... It was explicitly in a scene in which the Master explains that the Doctor and her relationship is closer to that of friends than enemies, and they sort of transcend human civilization and concepts of love. And and that's rich, and that's interesting. And and when he draws on the confession dial in this scene, the the next time we see it with the Master here, it's all of that's fallen away and it's just this villainous toting and the complexity that the master's given here is I blew them up because I was sad about a thing. It's just less. I stole this TARDIS and I ran away. I've been travelling ever since. And then you've got your Doctor theme. But also the first time you say all those things, the you know, was one of my interesting and deliberately kept them back in the first series. We went very different ways. So that when you say them here, it's like you're saying Gallifrey and Constorberus. Questions? And the master and... For the first time. But it's good that it ends on a... Questions? Like, back to business. Come <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> Again, that we need 11 episodes before we say Gallifrey. Or 12 episodes. 13. Uh, I think really. that almost ritualistic way of also making you, like, bring up Casturbrus. Like, you can't say, oh, I'm from... I'm an alien. Oh, I'm from Gallifrey in the constellation of Casturbrus. It's like that, that thing of, like, she has to say the thing. <laughs> say the line. It's like the Voyage of the Damned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
so odd. I know that um, maybe there were reasons informing why Series 11 didn't touch on continuity stuff, whether that was Chibnall's choice or BBC directive or whatever. But I still find it weird to so intentionally frame, well, this is the second act where now, you know, they can say a word. Now they can sit down. It's, it's so strange. One of the big virtues of Series 11 is that it, it manages to do Doctor Who without all the baggage, right? Yeah. I think that's quite an interesting angle on the show. And it, it feels so sullied in retrospect when it sounds like the reason you didn't emphasize all that baggage is so you could do it here instead. Yeah. Right? So what was the point of all of that? Just it It's not just delayed gratification, it's purely delayed gratification. That's the point of it, is to delay. The Series 11 is a delaying game. Yeah. It's putting off all the stuff till later, and that's the point of it. It's like, I don't feel that Series 11 had a story that needed the space from it. It's just like we didn't do it for this long. It's like the Ryan Graham story is so thin, yet it takes nine episodes. The Doctor story, whatever it is, is so thin that I have trouble even identifying what it was. There's not, like, this great story that needs 10 or 11 episodes to be told, and then we can move into the next phase. It's just like we arbitrarily... We'll do eleven episodes, well ten episodes of not having any continuity reference stuff, and then also we'll important to note about this reveal moment is that it, the the significance of it is entirely the fact that she's finally bringing up lore shit. Like rather than it being a character thing, but where she's finally confiding in her companions now that they're going to have a more honest relationship, a more mutual relationship, a more interesting relationship, it's literally just that she's bringing up the continuity stuff. Like yay, she said she said she said the thing. So like the the, the the actual important part of it, which the part of it that I think well, well, you would assume would be important in a show about characters, is just not. Yeah, that's meant to be the moment where she's telling them uh, she's finally opening up. It's been series eleven's been recontextualized as um, the Doctor keeping secrets. Yeah, you know the the no baggage version of the show is part of the Doctor's flaw, which is sort of interesting, um, but. When she finally opens up about it here, she's not actually learned anything or made progress because now she's just keeping a new secret. The the goalpost's been moved and the secret she's keeping now is about the master and the timeless child and whatnot. And then the same thing happens in Fugitive, right? Or yep. Timeless Children, where she she opens up about something previously she was keeping secret. Yep. But then <laughs> just starts keeping a new secret all the way to... Even the Daleks, right? Uh, it's, it's so one note. It's been happening for how many years at this point? Just endlessly. It's like we talked about in The Vanquishers. It's this narrative stasis stuff. It's such a endemic part of this era, and it's so annoying. I like, you know, characters regressing can be cool because that's a story. Characters progressing is awesome. That's a story. Characters walking around in circles. I mean, unless it's heaven sent, it's not a great story <laughs> most of the time. I mean, there's... All my favourite TV is fundamentally, like, iterative. It takes an idea and it does it again differently and it does it again differently. And that's Doctor Who's sort of better with that than anything else. Um, but there's... This isn't... This isn't taking that idea in a new direction. You've got stuff like... Um, the way that the throughout the Moffat era, the Doctor loses a companion and then cuts himself off and stops doing Doctor Who. He, he becomes isolated in different ways. But the way that that idea is iterated upon is that it's different each time and it shows a different facet of the character and it shows him attempting to develop and regressing and it's um, 
it, there's new angles on it. Here, I don't feel like anyone's learned anything about the Doctor's secret keeping after Spyfall, and I don't feel like anyone's learned it after the Timeless Children. And we're just going and going and going, and it's not like the drama's changing, it's just the same drama being restated. It's interesting. I'm almost thinking of the phone-watching thing again, because I think part of what people really like about TV, in contrast to film, where as I know lots of people will be happy to watch a new episode or re-watch an old episode of a show every night, but the thought of like watching a movie every day, like even if they binge three TV episodes a night, watching a new movie every night feels like an entirely different thing, because then you're entering into a new world every night, and you're having to learn new rules, and getting a sense of new characters and new relationships Watching a show, even if the show is new to you, even if you're like watching The American Office for the first time, you'll very quickly understand the rhythm of the show and the characters of the show and how episodes tend to go. So you fire up season four, episode 20 of The Office for the first time, you know all the rules. So it's relaxing to watch because you know how things are going to be treated. You know the themes of the show. You know the aesthetic of the show very well. Everything is, you get the novelty that it's a new story and there's going to be new jokes and new scenes and everything, but you know entirely how everything's going to work. I'm almost wondering now if in a weird way there's almost like a comfort viewing aspect to the stasis of the Chibnall era and that mm. we've been taught how it's going to function. Is this like part of the idea? Like that it's it's not so much a point of the character going in circles meaning anything. Like is the Doctor cold for not changing in behavior to her companions after the same beats keep happening? It, maybe it's not so much that as that this is the show. Part of the show is that the Doctor is like this to her companions. And that's just kind of, oh, you know, that's like the sound that character makes when he walks into the bar and cheers. He does that all the time. <laughs> it's, it's like part of it meant to be a trope of the character. I don't know. The classic sitcom thing is the story circle um, and the sort of slightly rote version of the sitcom is the one where everyone learns their lesson every week, but we're basically reset to yeah. factory standard by um the next episode and so everyone's constantly learning lessons and we have um catharsis we have resolution without actually going anywhere or exploring any new ideas we're literally just doing a circle um and i i think something i write about is that sitcoms have got a lot better than that yeah recently and there's more interesting things going on with sitcoms um but you can sort of see the, uh, we talked about it regarding vanquishes. It's the taking things apart just to put them back together again. Um, uh, Bell and Vinder are separate, but now they're together. Yeah. It's this very most basic form of storytelling where you're, you know, tension, catharsis, tension, catharsis without any meaning, without it being about anything. Is it just like a tool in Chibnall's toolbox that like, oh, a good drama thing is, the Doctor holds a secret and then the companions are like, tell us the secret. And the Doctor tells him the secret, sort of, and then doesn't tell him the whole secret and then we move on. Like, is this, is it not like an over, it's not, it's not like a big linked thing across the era, but it's just like, that's a thing I can do sometimes. Yeah, we <laughs> mentioned earlier stuff about um, fans of this era maybe rankling with other eras. And I wonder, maybe, maybe that, maybe that is part of it. Like maybe they, I guess this idea of like a holding pattern where the Doctor does these ropes things that are just ex expected in this one fan vision of Doctor Who, the Doctor has secrets and such, maybe that's like in its own way a kind of a comfort thing compared to say 
Oh, yeah, let's bring up Moffat again, the Moffat era, where compared to that, things are often quite unpredictable or like unsettling or volatile. You have Kill the Moon, where the Doctor will suddenly, you know, betray Clara or Clara will betray the Doctor, stuff like that. And eras like that can really piss off some people. Well, that era is defined by subversion and the story going somewhere you don't expect or maybe don't want it to go. It's like what people have said about um, the Timeless Children being a. Uh, an undeconstructed version of Hellbent, right? It's returning to Gallifrey and doing a big monster epic about a hybrid and origins mm. and, ooh, revelations. This is a less complicated version of the show where you don't need to worry about those big twists that might make you uncomfortable. Um, even the Doctor's flaws are, you know, neat and comprehensible and, uh, and we can easily understand that they're bad things and it's very it's explicable and easy and you don't need to worry too much about what it means it's something that hits me just now earlier we talked a bit about the show's educational it's like classic who again and then you were just talking about unpredictability of the capaldi era when i think back to the actual so-called educational era of the show like the hartnell era that wasn't an era of the show going in circles i don't think i feel like the character the main character there well the first doctor did actually progress and change and the ways he worked in the stories changed as he moved on so i felt like the character had a had a telos to him that i'm not sure the 13th doctor does in a lot of a era but also there was kind of that unpredictable thing again of you don't know what you're going to get each well maybe not week every, each four weeks or six weeks or whatever that the show changed much more unpredictably uh so it's just kind of funny to me that Often this era is kind of cast of a piece, you know, with that era in a kind of superficial way where it's just striking me that it's so different in that there are these other eras of Doctor Who, even the very first one, that I don't think we're going in circles. And I don't think we're kind of the comfort viewing in the same way that this one Yeah, the, the idea of Doctor Who is like a rote thing, very much got enshrined much later down the road. Yeah, that, that's the funny thing with the Hartnell era is it's like... All the solidified ideas of Classic Who, I don't think are really there. It's the, the later eras. That wasn't Doctor Who. That was a show that was just making its stuff up and being adventurous. When, when do you think it set in? Like, was it JNT or was it like more Pertwee? Or like, when do you think it started to happen? Yeah, that's a good question. When did Classic Who really solidify into a show with enough iconic Doctor Who connotations and Doctor Who format and iconography and whatnot that it was the shape we might retrospectively place onto earlier times like Hartnell's era. Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, it's a bit outside the scope of our Spyfall 2 and controversy and writing inspiration discussion today. So I'll leave that one to our listeners to answer and perhaps for us another time. So that's it for Spyfall Part 2. Coming up next will be the commentaries for Demons of the Punjab and Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, where we'll focus in on authenticity, historicals, personal history, those sort of topics, building off some of the ideas and themes raised in our Spyfall 2 commentary discussion today. So please feel free to chime in with your thoughts and reactions to our discussion today, the Spyfall 2 commentary excerpts, anything else that's crossed your mind. We'll see you next commentary discussion, and thank you again for listening.